Over the last number of years, I've tried at times to give you some metaphors to think about the church. And by metaphors, I mean words or pictures that help to bring into full color how we think or how we should think about the church. Because the reality is, is that we come from various walks of life, you've had various sorts of experiences in church, and we all come with a particular set of expectations or ideas about what church should be. We have concepts in our minds about what our experience should be every Sunday. And sometimes those experiences and those expectations are right, and sometimes they're not. And one of the metaphors that I've given you in the past is this idea of the difference between a cruise ship and a battleship. They're both ships, but they couldn't be more different. They both operate in water, they both have rudders, they both have engines, they both have a crew, but a battleship and a cruise ship aren't even close to the same thing. In a cruise ship, the, the entire purpose of that boat is to meet the needs of its patrons. So every part of it, from the check-in to the food to the service, every aspect of it is meant to cater to the people's needs. And that's appropriate. They're on vacation. They ought to be catered to. It's what they paid for. It's what they expect. And with the hope that they would be so satisfied with the experience that they would come back. They'd think, man, that was fun. We had our great family vacation. We're going to do this again. That's not a battleship. A battleship is not designed to cater to the needs and the particular whims of the soldiers that are on board. The mission of a cruise ship is to help people be entertained. The mission of a battleship is to win a battle. That's why it's called a battleship. And so the difference between the two are so incredibly important. And then as it relates to the church, you can sort of see where I'm going with this analogy, that oftentimes we can think of the church like a cruise ship when it's could be really considered a battleship. We, we come with the expectations and we ask particular questions like, did I like the sermon? Was the, the music to my liking and my taste? Did my kids have a good time in children's ministry? And while all of those questions aren't completely out of bounds, it can become very problematic if they become the dominant reason that you come to church. The church is supposed to be more like a battleship than a cruise ship. However, I'd like to adjust that metaphor just a little bit. There's a fatal flaw in that metaphor. The flaw is this, that a battleship does all the fighting from the ship. With big artillery guns, it gets close to the shore and lobs shells into the battlefield. And some of you may think of the church like that. The programs, the services, even the staff can be seen as the big guns that do the battle. You come and just support the firing of gospel bullets onto the shore. <laughs> the other analogy that I'd rather have us use was one that I discovered in a book I was reading over Christmas break called Gaining by Losing, Why the Future Belongs to Churches That Send. The book identifies that the better metaphor instead of aircraft or instead of uh, battleship is that of aircraft carrier. Just a little note when you're doing sermons, don't give away your metaphor before you're ready to say it. So. <laughs> and the idea is this, that an aircraft carrier deploys planes in order to fight battles beyond the location of the aircraft carrier. The idea is that there are constant deployments that are taking place, and rather than fighting its battles from the deck of the ship, it fights its battles by deploying soldiers to the field. J.D. Greer, the author of the book, says this, 
Churches that want to prevail against the gates of hell must learn to see themselves like aircraft carriers. Members need to learn to share the gospel without the help of the pastor in the community and start ministries and Bible studies, even churches in places without them. Churches must become discipleship factories, sending agencies that equip their members to take the battle to the enemy. Friends, you need to know that this metaphor is more than just a word picture. I'm hoping today that it helps all of us. I hope that it helps you individually to think a bit differently about what it means for us to be the church, what my role is in your life, what our staff's role is in your life, and even what God has called each of us to do. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at the 11 first 11 chapters in the book of Acts, and we're going to ask ourselves some really important questions. There's three. Number one, what are the ingredients for the missional movement that happened in the early church? Like what happened such that from a, a band of disciples, Christianity spread all over the known world? How did that happen? Secondly, for us to ask ourselves, what is the unique mission that God is calling our church to embrace in 2018? Why are we here? Why are we on the north side of Indianapolis? Why has God given us the history that he has? Why are you here as a part of this church? And then finally, at a more very personal level, and this is, this is the question that I want you to think about, every single one of us, what is your spirit-empowered mission? In other words, why you? Why did you come to faith in Christ? Why did God by his spirit open your eyes? Why did he bring you to this church? Why has he put you where you are in your career, in your position in life? Why, why are you where you are? What is God's mission for you? Now you need to know that these questions about this missional movement idea, it's, it's not a, a new series of questions for us. Over the last number of years, we've deployed 40 plus missionaries. We've seen 19 people heed the call and move into the Brookside neighborhood. We've seen a, a ministry start by one of our elders that had very little to do with any strategy on the church's part. We just helped fund a little thing called Purposeful Design in 2014 that had $37,000 of uh, sales, and this last year had over $900,000 in sales. Just a beautiful ministry that's grown, making furniture and providing employment. We've taken 350 of our people and sent them to the Fishers Congregation and also to Castleton Congregation. Both of those are going incredibly well. We've taken pastoral residents and deployed them and hugged on them and said goodbye to them. In fact, we had... One of those residents complete his work with us, uh, I think it was two Sundays ago. Luke Jones is now serving at Castleton. In fact, we have a video just to say thank you to you as a church. I want you to watch this video from Luke and Monica. Good morning, College Park. I'm Luke, and this is my wife, Monica. For the past year, I've had the joy and privilege of serving as a worship arts resident here at College Park. It's been such an amazing journey with you all this past year, and today, I'm starting as the full-time worship leader at the Castleton Congregation. From the very beginning, we felt so loved on and welcomed by you guys here. Thank you so much for investing in us this past year. I've gleaned so much over this past year, especially from Eric Anderson and Jake Brothers. They have served as such godly mentors to me, and I'm forever grateful for the invaluable input they've given 
into my life. We love how College Park is passionately committed to multiplication and we are a product of that. So from both of us, thank you so much for investing in us and sending us out now on this new exciting season of ministry. One of the things that we've talked about as a staff is just how hard it is to give people away like Luke and, and others who have become to, to love them and, and cherish them and yet we believe like parents, it's the right thing to do, to deploy people and to be able to give them away for the sake of the greater gospel good. I want us to think through what does that look like at a personal level? I want you to think through about your spirit-empowered mission. Asking the question, how does God want to multiply the gospel through you? How, where you're located, would you be a part of spreading the name of Jesus right where God has placed you? We're in Acts chapter 1 this week talking about the vision. What is the vision of what it means to multiply? And essentially, the singular thought from this text this morning is this. The vision is for more power, for mission, and multiplication. The secret to the way that the gospel advanced was that it was multiplied through people. It wasn't just multiplied through churches, but it was multiplied through people. It, multiplication beats addition every single time. Let me give you a little math quiz. You ready? If you were given the choice between receiving $10,000 a day for 30 days or having one penny doubled each day, which should you choose? Thank you, somebody answered, I was waiting. <laughs> if you chose the $10,000 for 30 days, you'd have $300,000. That's pretty good, that'd pay for your Christmas. But <laughs> if you doubled your penny every day and it was multiplied, you'd end up with about $10 million. Multiplication beats addition every single time, if you take the long view. I was thinking about this, thinking back to a Christmas about six or seven years ago. My grandmother um, was still living at the time. She came to the United States in the 1940s, leaving the Netherlands with five children. She and my grandfather started over, and then each of their children had fairly large families, such that by the time that Christmas came around, I remember the day when I looked around and I said, Grandma, how many grandchildren and great-grandchildren do you have? And she said in this sort of Dutch accent, oh, Romaric, we have, I think, about 86 grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I'm so blessed. Come here. You know, she like, come here. It's <laughs> incredibly loving and, and kind woman. And just to think that over a few generations, the little Rogup clan went from seven, mom and a dad and five kids, to 86, 87 great and great grandchildren. Church multiplication beats addition every single time. And the idea is of being able to multiply gospel influence, not merely by the programs of this church or by the strategy of our particular um, connection to the other congregations, but to think about how the gospel is advanced through all of us as we multiply the gospel right where we are. So let me walk you through this text. First with a vision for more, a vision for power, and then a vision for mission. So more, power, for mission. First, a vision for more. 
Book of Acts is a unique book. You need to know a little bit about the background of it as we jump into it. It's the narrative accounts of the events surrounding the birth of the church after Jesus ascended into heaven. It's more, however, than just a historical account. It's intended to provide confidence in what happened and to provide spiritual lessons along the way. Luke wrote the Gospel of um, Luke, and he also wrote this account in Acts. He probably wrote it somewhere between 70 and 80 AD. Like Luke, Acts was written with a dedication to a man named Theophilus. In fact, verse one says that. Now the audience would have intended to be much broader, but some commentators suggest, rather interestingly, that Theophilus may have been a patron who helped Luke with the costs of writing the gospel. Now, can you imagine? If you're a high-capacity donor and you fund the writing of two books of the Bible, I think Theophilus would agree. That was a pretty good investment. While the book is often called the Acts of the Apostles, it also could be entitled the Acts of the Holy Spirit because it traces the work of the Spirit through the birth and the growth of the church. One hermeneutical or one Bible study key that you need to understand that as we study the book of Acts, it's important to make a distinction, and there isn't 100% agreement as to when you make these decisions and how you decide them. The difference between something that is described and something that is prescribed. There's things that happen in the book of Acts that are just described, that's the way that they happen, but they weren't intended to be um, practiced or incorporated directly into the modern day church. For example, Pentecost is, is a non-repeatable sort of moment. So we may be praying for the Holy Spirit to come, but we don't mean for him to come in the same way that he came at Pentecost. I can explain what we mean by that when I have time this morning, but it's not Pentecost, it's a non-repeatable event. Or they, they chose a new leader by casting lots in Acts chapter one. We, we don't do that. Although interestingly enough, the state of Virginia did this last week. Uh, when there was a tie with an election, they put two names in a bowl and pulled it out and in effect drew the drew lots. So there's a distinction that needs to be made between what is described and what is prescribed in the book of Acts. Now let's begin. In chapter one and verse one, we find this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now the first phrase that I just want you to land your eyes on is this concept of all that Jesus began to do. This serves really as the summary of Luke's gospel, the first book that he wrote, and it sets the stage for what is to come in the book of Acts. What you need to know is that the book of Acts is the rest of the story of Jesus. So the works that Jesus began to do is Luke, And the works that Jesus continued to do is the book of Acts. But here's the thing. It is the work of Jesus beyond the Gospels, but without Jesus. That's the key. It's the work of Jesus, but without him. Take your Bible and go to Luke's Gospel, Luke 24, and you'll see this in terms of how Jesus explained to his disciples and how he commissioned them for this continuing work. Luke 24, verse 44. Here's what Luke says, Jesus said. 
Then he, Jesus, said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Oh, I wish I could have been there in that moment. Can you imagine? All of a sudden they're like, oh, the parables, the writings, the Old Testament. Suddenly now they're like, so that's what's been going on for the last three years. Like Jesus opened their minds and then it says, and he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and here it comes, here's their commission, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's the work that Jesus continues to do, but without Jesus. So when Luke says the work that Jesus began to do, the implication is that there's more that Jesus wanted to accomplish. In other words, Jesus was never plan A and the disciples plan B. Jesus multiplying himself through the disciples was always the plan. Go back to to the book of Acts, chapter one. We find that Jesus then is going to be taken up to heaven. Jesus' exit from earth, called his ascension, marks the completion of his ministry, but then the launch of the ministry to which he had entrusted to his disciples. We also notice that in verse 2, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So this is the record, this book is the record of the works of Jesus without Jesus. It's the work of Jesus through the disciples and it's the work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in the disciples. So let let this thought just sink in for a moment. That Jesus had more work to do, but he did that work through a spirit-empowered church. And what you need to know is that work is still going on. It's one of the reasons I love, there's a, there's a church planting network called Acts 29. There's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and they picked up a great idea, which is that God's continuing to write the story, not a literal Acts 29, but write the story of the church. So Jesus is still building his church. He still wants to do more. He is still doing more, and that has always been a part of his mission. That Jesus wasn't plan A and the disciples plan B, but rather Jesus multiplying himself through the disciples was always the plan. In fact, take your Bible and look at John 14 and verse 12. John's gospel picks up a very similar thought where Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Did you hear what Jesus just said in John 14? He said, greater works than these. Greater works. He says, whoever believes in me will do greater works. How could you do greater works than Jesus? Anybody feed 5,000 people this week with some bread and fish? (laughs) Anybody walk on water? Anyone gone down to the morgue at Marion County and said, 
come forth. You got locked up if you tried that. <laughs> so what does he mean, greater works? What he means is he's connecting this idea of greater works to the completion of the work of salvation, connecting these greater works to what we saw in Luke 24, the proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, later on in John's gospel, he says this, John said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Notice the connection, God sends Jesus, Jesus sends us. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What's happening here? Well, Jesus is commissioning these disciples to go and preach and declare forgiveness to anyone who would place their hope and their trust in the finished work of Jesus. That's the greater work. Jesus does his miracles anticipating this validation of who he is as the Son of God so that people would come to believe in him after he dies. And then he says the greater work is in effect for the disciples to go out and tell the world about the finished work of Jesus. So that is the more that Jesus intends to do. That's the more that we're called to do. In the same way that Jesus was sent into the world, so Jesus sends us in order to proclaim that simple message that anyone who believes in the finished work of Jesus can be saved from their sins. That's why if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the good news for you, friend, is this. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. If you've come to the point in time in your life where you are done trying to run your own life and ready for someone else to take control and you realize that your sin is causing enormous problems in your life. By that, I mean the brokenness that you just keep putting into your relationships, into your thinking, and the fact that you can't change the fundamental desires of your heart. When you look to Jesus and say, I give up and I trust in you, the Bible says you become a new creature and everything about you from the inside out begins to change. That is the greater work, the declaration of that finished work. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it means that every time we herald or talk about or have a conversation about the finished work of Jesus, we are engaging in this greater work that Jesus intended for us to do. Here's the problem, is that many of us don't think about the mission of the church that way. No, we think if we could walk on water, that'd be helpful. (laughs) That'd not only be kind of cool, but it would help people realize that what we've got is legit. If we could heal the sick and raise the dead, then people would believe. Well, what Jesus seems to say here is that the greater work is actually the finished work of Jesus and the work that Jesus intends for us to do is to herald this finished work and that's the mission of the church. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Do you see yourself as sent? Do you see yourself as part of the the, the tradition and the history of those disciples who have been commissioned to this work? Is that how you see the church? Do you see it as this this beautiful sending organism that's designed to, to, to flesh out the gospel in the world wherever you live? Is that how you see the church? Or do you see it as merely as this place that I go where I receive teaching and my kids are, are, are helped in the children's programming and I'm in a small group with people that I know and love and all those things are good and they're, they're helpful, but they're not the mission. The mission is for us to herald the greater work of Jesus. He wants to do more. He wants to do more. Secondly, there's a vision here for power. 
In verses three to five, we, we learn what Jesus does after his resurrection. It says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus appears and, and is on earth for 40 days. He makes various appearances to the disciples. He shows up on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24. He shows the disciples his hands and feet in the same chapter. He eats with them. He appears to Peter in John 21, restoring him after Peter's terrible denial. And Jesus did all of this in order to demonstrate that he was truly alive, that death had been defeated, that his once-for-all sacrifice indeed had been effective. He did all of this in order to affirm who he claimed to be, and so that these disciples would know that they are serving the risen King of Kings. They're, they're serving the one who bought redemption for them. They were witnesses then of what happened. But then more, this power not only involves the resurrected Christ, this power also involves the presence of the Spirit. Verse four, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This would be fulfilled in the historical moment called Pentecost. And the beautiful thing is, is they would be indwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit. Previously, they had experienced the Spirit through the presence of Jesus. But after Pentecost, they would experience the presence of Jesus through the Spirit. Just, just think of that. That the presence of Jesus was going to be mediated to them by virtue of the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit now has fallen upon all those who know the name and claim the name of Jesus. Which is why at Pentecost, little, little flames of fire appeared over their heads. Why did that happen? Because God is sending a message that the Spirit has not just fallen on Jesus, but the Spirit has fallen on every single one of you. Can you imagine that moment at Pentecost? You're looking around like, dude, there's something over your head. It's over yours, over yours, and you're looking around, you get the message, like we all have this signal that we're all now indwelt by the Spirit, that the presence of Jesus now rests upon us. And the Spirit then becomes their promise, their comforter, their empowerment, and the means by which they would do ministry. The Spirit now helps them to understand the Bible. Friend, that same Spirit is the one that dwells in you if you're a follower of Jesus. Do you know what that means? It means that if you're reading along in the Scriptures this week, and your eyes land on a particular phrase, and it leaps out at you, and your heart is gripped, and you sense an unusual level of conviction and joy because of what you are reading. In that moment, it is the Holy Spirit who has illumined your eyes, and in that situation that you are in, you are experiencing the very presence of the risen King of Kings. This is not just a little book that you're reading, a little language that you're exploring, or a line that somehow you have read. No, 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 no. This is Jesus through the Spirit who has shown up and mediated himself through the Bible, and you in that moment are communicating and communing with the living King of Kings. That should change how you read your Bible. You sit on your couch and you're like, okay, here we go. Because you can't wait to be able to meet with Jesus and have him show up to you through the Spirit and the Word point in Acts is simply that the same person that indwelt Jesus in his ministry is the same person who now empowers the disciples. It's important to remember that the same authority that they were given when Jesus says in, in the Great Commission, 
all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority is mine. So he says, go. I mean, that's a huge charge. I own everything. This world is mine. Now go. That, that commission is still ours. You know that? When Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. That wasn't just given to them in the first century. We are those who through the inheritance of those words still have that commission. Friends, there are spiritual strongholds in our city. There are spiritual strongholds in our lives, in our neighbors. Spiritual strongholds around the world where the gospel, if it was proclaimed and if it was received, could change someone's life immediately. You're here today, and if your life is a mess, I'm telling you, Jesus can change you from the inside out right now. The same authority that happened in, and was given in the early church is the same authority that's available now. There are people in bondage to their sin. There's people in your own home that are in bondage to their sin. There's people in your neighborhoods who are, they have shackles on their hearts and they, they, they live in a self-made prison and if the resurrected Christ takes over their life, everything changes. And imagine what would happen if they understood what Paul says in Romans 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When that message is understood, strongholds come down. The gates of hell can't withstand against the pressure of this glorious news. And this is the message, this is the greater work that we are called to proclaim, to give, and to share. We are called to go under the authority of Jesus by the power of the Spirit for the glory of the resurrected Christ and in the line of those who have been entrusted with this message like the disciples. That's our mission. So to that end, next Sunday at seven o'clock in the morning, for the next three weeks, we're gonna gather for prayer and my request before the Lord is, Lord, give me 100 people. Just give me 100 people who understand the, the importance of this reality, who feel the weight of the strongholds in our city. 100 people who would say, I can sleep in on Saturday, but I'm gonna come for 30 minutes and we're gonna seek the Lord to say, God, would you, would you pour out a fresh vision for us of how to reach our city, a fresh vision of how to reach unreached people groups, a fresh vision of how to reach our neighbors? And can I just invite some of you to get up a little early, take your kids with you? It'd be great, dads, if your kids heard you praying and seeking God's face for this and to join us at seven o'clock. We'll meet in the chapel, 30 minutes just to seek God. Let's see what happens. Because we believe that the same God who moved in the New Testament wants to move today, right? We believe the same spirit empowers us, that empower the, the disciples. We believe that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords still has much work to do in this city. We, we believe that, right? So let's pray and seek God like we mean that. And not look at churches. This is a place I come to and I get to ask, do I like things and is it catered to my needs and is it helpful? And while all of those things at one level are appropriate, they're not the end game, they're not the mission. Third, and finally, what is our vision for the mission? For that matter, what's the vision of your mission in life? In verses six and seven, the disciples ask about the timing of the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Jesus tells them it's of secondary importance. Only God the Father knows that. In other words, he tells them it's none of your business. <laughs> and then in verse eight, he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the purpose of the coming of the Spirit then is to make them effective witnesses. They're to go and they're to make testimony, they're to give testimony, make much of what has happened to them through Jesus. And so essentially the mission of every disciple is to go and tell people about Jesus. Tell them who he is, tell them what he did, tell them how he's changed their lives. And we're to do that in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So think about this strategy, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. This strategy serves, frankly, as the outline of the book of Acts. Jerusalem is chapter one to eight. Judea and Samaria, chapters eight to 12. Ends of the earth, chapters 13 to 28. But more than the outline of the book, the, the church needs to prioritize all four of these areas. We need to ask ourselves four critical questions. Jerusalem, who are the people near me every single day? If you have children in your home, they're, they're part of the Jerusalem mission. You need to disciple them, reach them with the gospel. Your most fertile and effective way to share the gospel is to do it in the context of every single day. So don't think that that doesn't relate to this mission. Oh, it does. One of the helpful ways that the gospel spreads is by Christians having children and discipling them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's an effective way to change the world and reach it with the gospel. But who are the other people that you are near every day? The people that you work with? The, the people that you come in contact? Just think tomorrow morning, who are you gonna see within the first four to five hours? Just close your, mind and, um, close your eyes and imagine those people. That's your Jerusalem. That's not my Jerusalem, that's your Jerusalem. And, and, and frankly, we could have all kinds of programs, all sorts of classes and everything else, but at the end of the day, you gotta go to your Jerusalem and open your mouth about who Jesus is. And that's what you're called to do. Jerusalem, Judea, Judea is how do I reach the people who are around me, who are closely located to me, not just near me every day, but the people who are near me, like my neighbors or the other people that are in my company or the people I'm gonna come in contact with. I'm, go to a restaurant, I'm gonna meet somebody who's, who's there and a, a, a person that I'm gonna come in contact with on a regular basis, Samaria. How can I bring the gospel to those who are different than me? And to the ends of the earth means what is my role in reaching people who've never heard the name of Jesus? So when we think about that here in terms of a, our outreach strategy, we think about it in four key ways. First of all, personal. How can you share the gospel with people near you? How can you be so fluent with the gospel that the gospel just weaves its way into conversations? That you know how to make the pivot from anything that you're talking about. That's the how the gospel relates to it. So that you move into a conversation about who and what Jesus is with a level of fluency that's just remarkable because you so love the gospel and you see how it affects your life that it just makes sense that there'd be this connection. At a local level, how can we take the gospel to our neighbors and to our neighborhoods? That's why we have our next door mission. How can we think about neighbors? Like you can reach people in your neighborhood that I'll never know. Our programming, our staff, no matter what we do, it's great of an event that we have that we invite people to come. At the end of the day, you're the one who has to follow up. And some of you had people come in for the Christmas concert. You had folks come in for Christmas Eve. That follow-up is something you're going to have to own because they're your neighbors. Urban, 
That's our Samaria. How do we see the gospel transform areas of our city with the greatest need and categories of people that are different than us? Global, how do we think about reaching unreached peoples, peoples who would never hear the gospel, would never hear the name of Jesus unless something is done? So what you need to know that, that more than an outreach strategy, this biblical mindset is how the gospel spreads. This is how the gospel multiplied in the first century. It wasn't just that they planted churches, but it was that people embraced the gospel and took it with them wherever they went. So just think of the leveraged capacity of what's in this room right now. Think of how many people we're gonna come in contact with in the next seven days. And you're right in their arena. So I don't need to think through of a, a strategy how to reach into the medical community. I already have people in the medical community. I don't need to think through how to reach lawyers. I already have lawyers there. I need to think how to, how to reach children. I have a stads of parents. The question is whether or not those of you who are in those arenas will see yourself as this is what my mission is. I, wasn't just go, I didn't go to school just so I could learn how to do this, to make money so I could have a house and put my kids through college and then have this repeat over and over and over. And, and those things are not inherently wrong unless they become the main thing about your existence in life. God's placed you in your neighborhood for the purpose of his mission. He's put you in the field of, of work that you're in. He's given you gifts that you could never have achieved on your own. Some of you have been given businesses, you have employees that are around you. Why has he given you all of this? The answer is the same for every single one of us, regardless of where God has placed us. Because God has us on a mission. In this way, our church is like an aircraft carrier. And every aspect of our church is meant to be a part of this mission of mobilization and multiplication. And our command, our responsibility, is to go. Look what happens at the end of this text. Verse 9, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Just let your imagination imagine this. Jesus is talking to them. He stops. As he stops, he starts floating And he goes up, and the text says, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So here are the disciples. He was with them for 40 days. They're looking up in the sky. Their minds, no doubt, so full. So many questions, so much anticipation. And then verse 10, while they were gazing into heaven, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I'd like to talk to these angels in heaven. It's just not very nice, right? I mean, why are we looking into heaven? Because the risen king of kings just went up there. We wonder what's gonna happen, right? And the idea is this. The reason they show up in this moment is not to be unkind, but because they want these disciples to know it just began. Everything he said, it's go time. Don't stand there looking up into heaven. Don't stand here savoring the moment. Don't stand there saying, this is pretty cool. Wow, did you see that? Instead, your mission is to understand he's coming back and verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem. They did exactly what Jesus said. Here's the thing, it is way too tempting to end a Sunday service and on your way out go, man, that was just awesome. What a great Sunday, that was a great Sunday. It's not a great Sunday if you aren't mobilized to go. Your small group may be awesome. You may have been together for a long time, but at the end of the day, the role of the small group is not just to be able to meet the spiritual needs of people in that group. 
The role of that group is to be together and then to multiply and deploy and start other groups and reach other people. And yeah, it's gonna be costly, it's difficult. As hard as it is sending away missionaries and giving away 250 people and 200,000 plus dollars from our budget every single year or saying goodbye to people who are headed to the mission field or, or having a, a, an uncurling of our financial resources. All of that is difficult unless you understand the beauty of the end game. The long game is the multiplication of the gospel. And so we can't stand looking and savoring what Sunday morning is all about and what happens in the context of the church. We gotta realize the purpose of why we're here is so that we can be mobilized for mission. So on a personal level, here's the question I want you asking. Where has God providentially placed you? How has he gifted you? And where is he calling you to be sent today? You, nobody else. There's people you're gonna come in contact with. And what is God's mission? Why has he put you where he has? Because the, the question is not if you're sent. There's no question. The question is where. Because at the end of the day, the vision of the church is Jesus saying, the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Let's go change the world. And it can happen. Because Jesus has called us to be his disciples. Let's pray together. Lord, deploy us from this place with a greater sense of urgency. Help us for the tension that we feel about how much is, what's too risky, what's beyond our ability to even dream about or do. Help us, Lord, because right now we have in our minds people that we're being sent to who need to hear the message of the gospel and need to be loved on in Jesus' name. So Lord, help us to have a mindset of those who are sent. And help us where we're afraid, where we're fearful, or where we just don't want to do it. Give us grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.